At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Well, you're doing the right thing. First, you're listening to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we have Blitz Ayers, uh, who's been around for, in the Air Force. I think it was about 22 years he was in the Air Force, and then he was the commander of the 77th Fighter Squadron at Shaw Air Force Base. He took them to combat, double down, that's right. Double down. And, uh, yeah, took them to combat and uh, did some good work back in uh, 2014. Uh, and then he separated and uh, is now working at Tangram Flex and so has some other stuff in the works. So uh, thank you, uh, Blitz, for being here. And uh, just get some admin out of the way. Remember, everyone, like, share, subscribe. Uh, kind of keep spreading the word about Kodiak Shack uh, to help us keep growing our audience and our ecosystem. But Blitz, thanks for being here. And uh, tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Yeah, yeah no problem. Uh, Bender Vader, thanks for having me on today. Uh, I'm excited to uh, have some conversations around kind of what I've done afterwards and, and the tech space for any, of the, uh, for any of the operators out there that have some interest uh, like you said, I was in the Air Force for a little over 20 years, flew F-16s the vast majority of that time. Quick stop in the Pentagon, did some school, uh, like most folks. And uh, yeah, you mentioned it in 2014, went to uh, Operation Inherent Resolve, took over from Masawa, who actually kicked it off, right? They actually went there on a training mission and then for three months converted over to combat. And that was, uh, I mean, incredible work by Masawa, uh, unbelievable work. And uh you know, we were excited to be there and they left us in really good shape. So that was definitely the highlight, you know, seven straight months of uh, leading combat operations with, as you might imagine, what I would have thought like is the greatest organization in the world. The fighter squadron is, is an awesome place to be when it's all when it's hitting on all the cylinders. And uh, man, it was great. It was really great. Yeah, well, Bender and I appreciate that because we were the we were in the thirteenth when we handed off. So uh, it wasn't either of us that actually did the good handoff. It was probably dudes like Chickdo mm-hmm. and and uh, Hobo and Stash. But yeah, we were happy to be there, and um, it was amazing to kind of see the war machine spin up. You know, you imagine when you're a student and you're going through and becoming a fighter pilot, you kind of think like, oh man, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be you know the centralized what. Uh, centralized control. No, I always forget because mm. we don't actually do it. You got it. You guys remember? You got it. Yeah, centralized control, centralized decentralized, control, decentralized yeah. execution. execution yeah. There it is. Yeah, and it was none of that. It was like hand holding, and there was like, hey, you're not going to drop for probably a month. And so we got pretty salty pretty quick. At least I did. And uh, and then I realized like, hey, this thing 
you know, we're slowly turning the gears of war, you know, and then it seemed like as the 77th showed up and squadrons thereafter, it definitely spun up into what you would think it would be. But yeah, that first month I was like, man, what are we doing? You know? So maybe that was just me. No, I mean, I think the, the, uh, I mean, I think we're learning this with the current conflict, right? If you look at Russia and Ukraine and everybody has their opinion, but I think one of the things that we miss from an operational standpoint is projecting power, whether it's air power, whether it's hard power, right? Anything across the DOD or financial power, or, um, you know, as you're sending emissaries uh, all across to, to do negotiations all across the world, it's very difficult to do. And we take it for granted in the U.S. Air Force because we've been doing it for 30 plus years. And even before that, right, with Desert Storm, that it just works. But that's not the case, right? Every single time you have to build up to get to that level, there's lots of sacrifice, lots of sleepless nights, people traveling all over the world. Um, and we do it now like it's no big deal. But just imagine the complexity of getting tankers where they need to be, just tanking on a regular basis, right? We found out with some of our, some of the folks we flew with downrange, that's, that is a given that we just say, oh, yeah, we're going to go to the tanker today. And that is not the case almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and all the things that have to happen, everybody putting the right tire on the right airplane and doing the right inspections and getting the right fuel, that is an immense undertaking. So it takes a while to get those things cranked up. Yeah, and, and you know, as a young guy, like now that I've gotten a little older, I realize just how ignorant I was to to the scale of everything. You know, you think hey, I'm in an F-16, I'm the pointy-nose fighter pilot who does the job. And you don't realize, like, the massive machine that is going into creating that. So, so yeah, the second yeah. time I went to the same AOR, I, I had a better perspective. And it was it was nice because, you know, I, I remember what it was like to be there the first time. And so there were young guys who their first deployment were, like, mad and salty, like, ah, oh, we're not doing anything tonight. And I was like, hey, like, I, I remember being there, you know, I'm not mad at you, but understand, like, it's, it's just the perspective, you know, once you gain that broader perspective. Did you always want to be a commander where you're like, hey, my goal is to be a squadron commander, or did you just kind of end up there? Like, how did that work out in your career? Yeah, so I'll be as transparent in this answer as I can. Um, <laughs> I never really thought about how my career would look. Uh, obviously early, right? I mean, you're so focused on your execution, getting through pilot training, getting through IFF, getting through RTU, right? I mean, those were all huge events, right? And then you get to your first fighter squad and you get through MQT and you're almost like, man, I could take a breath, except I know literally nothing, right? So now I have to go learn how to be a fighter pilot. And the time, just about the time that starts, oh, I'm going to go to the upgrade and be a flight lead. And then, oh, I just got comfortable leading around a four ship and now I'm going to be an IP, right? Um, and in my case, I was really fortunate. I then went on to Nellis, and then came back as an instructor. But sometime around that senior IP, I started watching, like, how does this really work, right? Like, so all I did now is just get to the point where I'm kind of good at something and I'm instructing, usually not very well, but I'm doing my best at it, right? Uh, but how does this work? How do the jets get where they go? Like, why do we make decisions like this? Why, why do I have to do this? How come I can't have the range space I want? All those things that bothered you. Sometime around that senior captain, it kind of clicked for me. I'm like, oh, if I want to have a real impact on young pilots' careers and lives, I need to take the next couple of steps. Um, and at that time in the Air Force, unfortunately, it was late. I, I needed to identify that a couple of years earlier. I probably would have uh, had, had some different opportunities. Um, but then maybe I wouldn't have got the command downrange, right? So things typically work out. Um, 
uh, for the best, right? That, that's kind of how I I felt that way. But um, but yeah, pretty early on, way before I was a major, I was like, I really want to be a fighter squadron commander. And then sometime when I got back off the staff and I watched how that happened, I kind of had it in my mind, like if the opportunity comes up, I could, I would love to go on, right? Be a group commander, be a wing commander. Um, and those opportunities just didn't materialize. So I was really excited and happy to go be a squadron commander. And frankly, I wouldn't have changed anything that got me there. So the fact that I didn't go on to be a wing commander, uh, I'm fine with that. Yeah. And I think, cause you, uh, you got, you, did you do the fellowship in DC? I didn't do the or, fellowship, but I did do a year doing legislative liaison, uh, advising for the was. house and the Senate armed service committee from the DOD perspective, which was really, really awesome. Nice. Yeah. We actually spoke with uh slander Entine, who's, uh, who's sure. there now. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, again, talking about perspective and broadening your perspective is, you get to do those things and you get that much bigger picture of, Hey, there's a lot that's going on. And I know this seems super, super important to you as an F 16 pilot without link 16, but there's a lot more going on. And you know, you're probably thinking of these things and they're thinking of things that are like way above that in the, you know, strategic level or operational level that is, is way more broad than just that specific tactical capability. Yeah. Um, I would offer one of the things the Air Force did when we got, I say we, when the Air Force got to this, they're like, oh, we're short of fighter pilots and we're not retaining them the way we thought we were based off lots of factors, right? They always try to narrow it down to one factor and that's not reality. It's, it's multifactorial. However, when they stopped sending people to the staffs, sending operators to the staffs, having already have gone through that, I, I thought to myself, that's going to have the negative effect. Short term is going to be fine. Going to the staff was painful for a lot of people. I was kind of one of the weird ones that liked my time at the pinup gun, but painful or not, when you come off the staff, you are so much more informed about how things work and you can give so much better advice to the captains and lieutenants and majors in your squadrons. And um, when I was a commander at Shaw, I think all two of the three of us had been to the staff, but none of the ones that replaced us had been. And I think that leads to people um, I think it leads to even lower retention rates um, in one aspect, because all you feel is that constant frustration as a senior IP. Why can't I get the resources I need? But without the perspective to understand, there is a bigger picture going on. And also being in the room, I sat in the room with four stars and three stars and two stars, and I listened to them speak. And I thought to myself, oh, if I'm at that table, I make a similar decision, right? I heard all the same information uh, that they did and they were very reasonable about how they made decisions. And it just gives you a bigger perspective about how difficult it is to get all the forces in the place where they need to be to get those resources. Uh, and Oh, by the way, running wars 24 hours a day and trying to figure out, you can't see my hands, sorry, and figure out what's <laughs> going on at Shaw and how do I get the right training allocation, right? That's also critical. Yeah. I feel like that's my, my worst thing. I talk with my hands a whole bunch and then I have to hold them right in front of the camera, even though like the vast majority of people listen. So, you know, it's, you're uh, damned if you do damned if you don't. But yeah, I think that's, I, I almost feel like a lot of people, it's just kind of the party line of like a fighter pilot who does a non-flying gig and he comes back and he just has to say it's bad because it was a non-flying gig, you know, and you're back in the squadron. You're like, Oh yeah, the Pentagon, the worst, but I bet there's probably more people who have your, had your experience of it was more enjoyable than they let on just because, you know, it's 
it is a broadening experience. It gives you a chance to understand the greater process of things. But so then yeah, my, my last oh, note on that is if you think you liked flying fighters before go to the Pentagon and come back, <laughs> man, not, I mean like the first few times you get back in, you're just like, what is that musty smell of old <laughs> airplane and dust? Let's do this. Let's go, let's go fly. Yeah. Which yeah. it's funny. Cause I, I had seen some of the, you know, some of the older dudes who had come back from two year non-flyings and things like that. And they were ready. They were excited. They were hungry, you know, and then you've got the senior captain, who's just like tired of, you know, hot pitting four days a week. And it's, you know, it's almost, again, I know all the young guys who listen to this are going to be like, ah, Vader, you know, he's sold out. But I, there, there is goodness. It's not all bad doing those, those non-flying things. So as you, as you kind of finish up command, then you're, I think you were the deputy OG. So you're the deputy group commander. Um, so helping out yep. kind of the, the group operations. And then it seems like you kind of separate from there. So what was that kind of separation experience? Like, Hey, when you were leaving, you know, how did you kind of transition into uh Tango and flex? And we'll kind of get into that after. Yeah. So I had a little bit of a longer road, uh, which is, we talked about this earlier, but I have a pretty unique history. So I left the, or retired, retired from the Air Force. Uh, my wife's a physician. So we, it was a little more complicated about where we were going to stay based off if she was going to be able to own her own practice or if we were going to move someplace. And based off that, I didn't do a great job of preparing. And I ended up taking a job um, at Shaw to do some support for the war room. And that was a great job. I really liked my boss. Uh, there were not really growth opportunities. And so I kind of, you know, I only had that job for like seven to nine months, seven, seven point seven months. I'm trying to figure out all the squadron size in a shot. And, um, <laughs> and I turned around yeah. and I kind of panicked and said, Hey, I, I need to go do something. And it's Sumter, South Carolina. And I hadn't done all the prep. Um, and so I was like, well, I'll give Delta a try. And, and I know a lot of people are rolling their eyes. What do you mean? Give Delta a try? Well, I didn't, I never really wanted to be an airline pilot. It's not something I ever thought about. I still had qualifications. And so I did. Delta is a great company. I think all the airlines are probably great companies. I can't speak to any of them, but Delta, but uh, the whole process was straightforward. Uh, I really liked the company. In a lot of ways, I really liked the atmosphere. Um, wasn't for me. Wasn't a good fit for my family. Wasn't a good fit for my personality. COVID hit. They were furloughing people. I ended up getting on a year-long leave, and at the end of that, just decided I wasn't going to go back. All right, so that's that timeline, right? Six months prior to the end of that furlough, my, a former boss at, Pentagon, at the Pentagon called me and said, hey, we're in this technology startup. We sell to the Air Force. We're at AFRL primarily, Air Force Research Lab for anyone that is listening. And so that's a real niche scientific research-y type place. And we want to start selling to bigger Air Force. And I said, oh, sounds like a good fit. I don't know anything about it. And uh, he said, don't worry. So um, I got involved with them in a 1099 part-time basis while I was on furlough from Delta. And um, it kind of grew out of that. And, you know, really quickly, I realized the, the way you solve problems. My favorite thing about being an F-16 pilot, and look, if you're a, not an F-16 pilot, I'm sure it's the same way in your communities. I just don't know it because I didn't fly in those communities. So take no offense. But my favorite part about being an F-16 pilot was we would get a problem set and the first answer everybody gave was, okay, how are we going to solve it? There wasn't a no, there wasn't, it was just like, how are we going to solve it? What will it cost? And how effective can we be on the backside? And that mentality I found is really quite applicable 
in the technology space, especially um, Tangram was at the end of the startup phase when I got there. And so you're solving bigger problems than just can you sell your product, right? You're solving problems like what kind of customer base do you have? What kind of market are you in? What problems do they have? And does your technology fit? And does it fit at a better price or a better price point? And then how do you communicate that, right? And, and that, those problem sets are, um, it sounds foreign if you haven't done it, but what I realized real quickly is it is the same problem solving. I mean, I would literally write up whiteboard lessons when I was talking to people about, right, what is our objective, right? Like, well, we want to do better. Okay, that's subjective. What is our objective today, <laughs> right? And, and all those lessons that you learn, we move on and, uh, and they're real applicable. Yeah. See, and I love that because I feel like I have this conversation with a lot of fighter pilots where I say, like, we already have so many tools to solve problems, you know, whether it's taking command in the military or doing something outside the military, even solving problems at the home. It's like we've been taught, like we know how to, like, build desired learning objectives or we know how to boil things down to their root cause. And, you know, so I always get surprised when when fighter pilots don't take that perspective and that ability from outside or from in the vault to outside the vault, they just kind of are like, ah, yeah, crazy. Right. And you're like, no, you, you already have the tools to succeed. You know, that's right. I would also offer the, the thing I think that makes operators unique, especially ones that were a little more on the forward edge of the employment is uh, risk tolerance. Um, you know, when you're a Lieutenant, how much risk can you tolerate? How much do you have? Let's go do it, right? I don't care. Because uh, you're just, you have no idea how uh, out of control you are most of the time. But even as you go across your fighter pilot career, every time you're in a, a large force exercise or even in a four ship, right, you have already baked in what is the risk I'm going to accept today. And sometimes it's more and sometimes it's less. And how will I mitigate that risk? And when will I know it's too much? And are there metrics to measure that risk as we go across? Think about how you do EPs, right? I mean, you're flying around at 350 miles an hour within five feet of another airplane flying 350 miles an hour and someone has a problem. And you're, you've already gone through your mind and said, okay, is this risk worth, can I accept this risk or not, right? And would it change in combat, right? All those conversations that you have is very unique. What I found when I got out into the business world, and I'm going to talk about the tech space specifically, some people are very risk averse naturally. Some businesses are risk averse naturally, but a lot of that comes from a result of the inability to figure out or even have a coherent conversation about what is the consequence of which risks and which consequences can I mitigate and manage so that I can take that risk, right? Um, And so I find that one of the major advantages for operators is the ability to discuss risk and how to mitigate it and what the worst case and best case uh, and and middle base, you know, like what you expect to happen in the expected case, that is very uncommon. And I think it's a big advantage. Well, that's good to hear because I we kind of talked offline, but I know multiple fighter pilots who have reached out and said like, hey, the, the airlines don't seem like a good fit. Uh, you know, how would I get into the innovation space? You know, is there, because obviously I think a lot of the guys getting into innovation is exactly what happened to you. It's you had a bro or you had somebody you used to work with who said, Hey, I want to work with you again. But sadly, there's just not that many operator types in the innovation space. So what would you kind of give a recommendation to someone who's trying to, you know, pursue some of this as a career? 
Well, you're doing the right thing. First, you're listening to the Kodiak Shack podcast, right? That's right. Get some awesome opportunities to hear people discuss their um, their opportunities. But I I would say, um, having retired and and watching people retire, and some of the things that they go through, one of the things that fighter pilots are notoriously bad at, right? There are some things. Let's be honest about that. We're notoriously bad at a couple things. Um, One of those is you have this entire network of people. And you're typically hesitant to reach out on things that aren't fighter pilot specific. And so when I retired, I felt like I was in this black hole. But what the, the reality is, that's not the case. You have a whole group of people that, hey, I, I have a friend of a friend. I've never really met him, but I know he knows, you know, he knows Sundown. I'm trying to think of the Maverick call signs from the movie. But he knows Blitz <laughs> or he knows Shaq or he knows Bender, right? And if you can get those connections, it is... I mean, almost to the person I've had zero bad experience. I've had a couple of people that were a little more lukewarm, but most people reach back at me and like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. What do you want to do? Who do I know in that space? Right. And they may not be able to help you, but they will find someone or put you in connection with somebody. Uh, and shockingly that actually goes across service lines. Uh, I had a friend of mine not too long ago that put me in touch with a Navy uh, F-18, former F-18 uh, pilot. And, and he was awesome. He reached out right away and said, yep, this is my experience you know, have we ever crossed paths? You know, you do all that. Um, but he, he helped me out a ton and some of my new, uh, some of the new things I'm going into. So, um, I just think that leveraging your network is harder to do, uh, in your mind than it is in reality. Right. So whether it's LinkedIn or phone calls or group me or whatever the Instagram, whatever, whatever you're on, right. I think that you can start there and you'd be shocked at how fast you can make that, those connections grow into opportunities or at least into real conversations. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. And I think, I think that, I mean, just viewing what I've done in life as a litmus and you're exactly right. Like, I'm like, ah, you know, well, I do know that guy, but I don't want to reach out. But then if it's fighter pilot stuff, it's like, Hey, this dude's on his way there. He's awesome. You know? And, uh, and you're very willing to, to communicate when it's like a guy showing up to a squadron or, you know, now hitting this age in, uh, my, you know, air force life, it's, Hey, so-and-so is rushing you know, what's the word on him, you know, and then the bro network kind of starts, starts working for, for or against you, depending on the, yeah, the guy who's looking right. for a job. But, uh, well, that's, that's good to hear. And I think that's something that I think would be good to have more people in the space. Obviously there's guys like yourself or guys like, uh, Paco Benitez, who's, who's in the innovation space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was a strike Eagle Wizzo patch. And so, you know, there, there are people, and I think that's one of the things we need to do is, is leverage those connections a little bit more. The, oh, yeah, uh, I mean, you quick. could probably hop. Oh, so ahead, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was, well, I was just going to say, like, even, so I'm a Delta sellout, obviously. Uh, I shouldn't say sellout because <laughs> I like working for Delta too, but. Hey, make no mistake. I, I have. Well, not to you. I, loved, <laughs> I yeah. love it when people go to the airlines and are happy, right? I, that is awesome. You need to find something that you're passionate about or that you're happy about for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, it just wasn't, wasn't mine. wasn't my passion. Yeah. And I mean more so like, well, my point is all the, almost every fighter guy that I know that works for airlines has some sort of side hustle that they're, you know, interested in doing. And it's not because they're trying to make an extra dollar or two, you know, it's because I think like you guys are talking about, they have, you know, they've spent 15 years like honing these skills and being really interested in being investing in something and seeing it improve and get better and better. So they all spend their free time like in projects kind of like that or almost all of them. 
So there's even for the guys who get out, I mean, the Air Force still, even though they've separated, has there's this huge pool of people who are still really invested in seeing things get better and like taking projects to a successful kind of end state. So if, if there's a way, I think a lot of those guys are probably listening and I'm kind of one of those guys, like I am interested in spending my free time doing that kind of stuff, you know, and, and getting involved in, in, you know, seeing the air force be successful. Cause we all see the weaknesses and we all like, that's why I'm excited to like talk to you blitz. Cause the idea that, that you're solving problems that operators are having, um, and you're outside the Air Force doing it, that's that's exciting. Like so we can all still like have a piece of the you know, the war effort, if you will. Yeah, well, and I think also that we have a strong technology base, even if we don't consider ourselves to be tech nerds, right? Uh, think about all the weapons studying that you did and all the interactions between systems and how you went out and sometimes the system didn't work right, and either you went and researched it or like called Lockheed or had a weapons officer go, well, let's look at this and let's go look. And the Air Force is really good at actually giving you the documentation that you can almost always get down to a technological reason. And if not, flip, flip, flip number, you can contact somebody and they will tell you why your system doesn't work. Uh, that is pretty unique to the DOD, right? Like uh, that's not that way when you're working like commercial to commercial, you can't always get to that level of fidelity um, depending on what you're doing, right? Um, just because not that many people are that curious and usually it's not uh, in their best interest to get that curious because they have other things to solve. But uh, so I, so when people look at the technology space and they're like, well, I don't know how to code or I don't know how to do this. I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I got that. But you know, you know how systems work. And more importantly, you know, like how someone is going to use those systems to accomplish a mission, which I think is a huge gap. So I'll, one of my favorite examples of this is AI every company you've ever heard of is trying to do AI for the DOD. Some of it more is administrative, right? Going through terabytes of database uh, data and trying to see trends. But you know, uh, DARPA ACE, Alpha Dogfight, I'm sure you've heard of that or had friends that have been involved in that, right? Uh, putting AI inside of an F-16 and actually gonna go fly it. When you are building those models, if you do not have an operator that can provide you some perspective how do you know if what you're training the AI is relevant? And so I was involved with the company not too long ago. And we were having some conversations and we were talking to their engineers. And, and um, so I had, I had their, their VP, right, who really wants this from a business perspective to go through. And I had their engineers and they have a little bit different perspective on how much training is required. And so as we're going through the training, they, came, they told me what their results were. And I tried to be very diplomatic and nice about it because they'd spent a lot of time. They had, they had all the infrastructure in place, but the solution they came up with was not relevant. It's really a great solution, not to the problem they were trying to solve, right? And so how do you, how do you break that to them that, hey, you, you, right up to this level, you're doing great. But now we need to like, how is an operator going to use it, right? Whether that's a pilot, whether that's someone on the ground that's operating, am I controlling another aircraft, right? Like, because now I have to go teach my AI to think in those manners. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was at the Pentagon, we met with some folks from the finance, um, from the FM side. And I, there was a lady in the back that stood up. She says, hey, we have 3,000 AIM-9s and we never use them. Can we just stop using those? Right? That is a solution. Financially, that would solve a lot of problems. <laughs> it's also not relevant to the discussion, right? And so, but she didn't know that because she didn't have an operator there to tell her like what an AIM-9 is and why a dash 9X is better than a dash 9M, right? And so it's it's not that different in 
in the tech world. And then once you can fit into that realm, now you can like what I've, I'm in that point now where I'm starting to go think about it from a technical standpoint. Right. And I'm going to talk to engineers about actually how things work. And it just makes you that much better to be able to be relevant to the companies you're, you're working with. Yeah. I think, you know, th- that's a great example. Cause I was actually talking with a buddy who is, uh, assisting just kind of like a random phone call receiver from an AI company working on that exact thing, like getting an F 16 to fly, um, like via AI totally autonomously and do air to air. And someone explained like, Hey, not all data is AI ready. Like just because data exists doesn't mean it can just go directly into AI. Like that data has to be formatted in a manner that AI can use. And I think that's also something operators need to do is like an engineer can't or could, but it'd be very difficult to read a 3-1 and, you know, effectively the the tactical manual for a fighter and then just code off of that or program off of that. They need it to be engineer ready. And I think that's where operators come in frequently is – our job is to know and understand what the, you know, what is useful information and then convey that in a way that is able to be understood by people who are not tactically minded, but wildly smart engineers who make AI. Um, So that's, it's interesting because he has conversations with these engineers and they're like, you know, they said, Hey, what would be a good air to air test? And he said, 1v1 TI, you know, tactical intercepts, just one AI running an intercept that would make a safe intercept. So what, what we would do today is like a single side offset. And they're like, well, I don't get it. Like, why wouldn't you just shoot them at range? And it's like, we understand like, yes, theoretically you would know they're bad at range and you would shoot them at range, but you still need to be able to get to that merge. And they're like, but I don't understand. Just, you know, you don't need to. And it's like, well, and then it's like, hey, what if they shoot at you? Now there's a lot of decisions that have to be made. Uh, and it's it's one of those where I can imagine there is probably a full-time job that these engineers could keep an operator busy with questions and reattacks and updates and updates to the updates. Um, so I know there's the need out there. It's just placing those people rather than, hey, a, a line IP major takes two hours out of his day, you know, once a week to answer some questions and it's probably doing them both a disservice, you know? A hundred percent. So think about the, the assumptions that, that we make just in that sentence, right? Do either one of you drive Teslas or a car that does pilot type stuff? Yeah. I'm an aspiring Tesla driver. (laughs) Okay. So I, I do not own a Tesla. So caveat, I am not aware, like it doesn't have a, like you can't just click off the autopilot, right? I mean, I I think if you hit the brakes, it might, I I don't really know how you turn the autopilot off in that. Uh, Maybe if you hit the brakes or turn, I'm not sure, right? But back to that AI company, that's the discussion we got in. Uh, The discussion that was kind of a round circle discussion of, um, well, the computer's going to do that. I'm like, yes, but the pilot, the person sitting there needs to have some inputs, right? And so we were trying to figure out like, and, and by the way, if any of you, you fly off 35s right now, Bender, right? Yep. Uh, when you're under stress or under strain, how does your voice activation work? Uh, it, that, well, I've never tried it under stress or strain. Okay. So, so there's reasons for that, right? Uh, it's, it sounds great in concept, but it's much more difficult in an actual cockpit environment, especially if you're breathing hard or pulling G's or doing anything like that okay. to have that work, right? 
And so the assumptions built in for these engineers were that I hand this to AI and AI goes and takes care of it. That's great, except what happens if the inputs change, right? It's a dynamic environment. I may have a bigger threat. I may have something else, right? And so you get to this checklist that is never ending and you can't make a checklist for everything, right? And so what I was trying to say to them is there's times when I want a button that says, I have a solution. Do you want me to do it? Yes. No, <laughs> right? Uh, for example, so uh, the Tangra Flex is a sub um, to a company that's working on that alpha dog fight. And that's the whole thing, right? We're trying to figure out like, what is the hotest to say, you've got it, go fight this thing versus when do I take it back? And can I just like, like autopilot, can I pal it off for a second and get the airplane in a more advantageous position and then let it go from there, right? So how does that work? And, you know, a lot of the engineers are like, why? Just turn it on and let it go. Well, because I may not want to do that. There may be reasons why I don't do that, right? And we haven't even got into, I mean, think about an air to air engagement. How many things have to happen for me to be able to shoot at range or not shoot at range or maneuver, whatever. And then as you know, just about the time you think everything's set, here comes a busload of nuns at 30,000 feet. You never see that coming, right? <laughs> um, and so you have, to, you have to be able to have the airplane provide you on the minute solutions that you may or may not enact. And that is something for the, that engineers just start pulling their hair out. Um, and then there's times when you do want the airplane to go, hey dummy, you're doing this wrong like smart defensive reactions. What if AI said, hey, you just stepped inside a MAR and this, I think this person's shooting you. We should do something about that. Yeah, okay, do it, right? Like I don't even care what else is going on because I need to survive this. And there you go. So now that, well, you just said, have the airplane take over. No, I got it, right? And those, <laughs> that is not easy. There's no black and white. There's no checklist, right? And so how do you have the, the, the human machine interface? That is where operators make their money and, it is one of the things that are not understood until the end after all the algorithms have been built. And so, you know, my, my very uh, humble goal is to move that slightly left on the development curve so that we're thinking about building that in so that we're not blindsided uh, when it's actually implemented in an airplane. Well, I think so. The, oh, good. I was going to ask if they're, so is Tangram, like, where are they at? So you're saying that on that scale, they're at the end, right? Or at least some of the companies you're working with. So how do they, what would they need to do? You know, like when you say you're kind of working on kind of moving that back, what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, so Tangram doesn't actually write any of the AI algorithms. Our uh, job in this, and for all your F-16 guys and gals out there, this is going to be like music to your ears. Our job is to make systems work together. Right. So F-16 is one of the most federated systems we have. Right. We have sensors from one place and radars from another and all these things that have kind of been piled on the jet. Uh, and we always have to go back to uh, Lockheed and say, can you do this? Right. Well, now the government owns that OFP. So the ability to rapidly integrate a new capability is something that is just emerging. So there's uh, software development, pro not development, but software architectures that are open now open mission systems, if you may have heard of that from the Air Force. And at first everyone said, well, that's just gonna, that's gonna solve this integration problem. But it's not entirely true because there's a lot of context that goes on, right? Like Lockheed's open mission systems may be different than Boeing's, which may be different than AFRL, right? So there's still integration that has to go. But the idea is to go to the AI engineers and say, what is your data in and data out, right? Don't, don't tell me the end game, what data is required in and out such that when you are making HOTAS decisions, you keep 
more options open the absolute longest. Don't close a door until you have to, right? That's a very tactical decision. When I'm flying air to air, I don't, I don't give up an intercept option until I need to for a reason, right? Um, you know, don't tell your boss you're retiring or PCSing until you have to, you know, you know what I mean? Like you want to keep your options open the longest. Uh, and we're all, and there's millions of times in life that you want to do that. No different than software. And if you're not careful and really thoughtful about that, when you integrate a system, you may be turning off the ability of that system to grow or communicate with other things or to be pulled out and swapped out, um, in a timely manner without really knowing it. And so, um, a lot of it is how you do the system design. Some of it's how you do the, uh, system architecture design and then a lot of it's just how you integrate it to make make it more like lego pieces rather than tailored one-off um parts you know like the henry ford model make all the parts the same on all the cars if i can so that i can put them wherever they go versus the handmade you know foreign supercar where yeah this right fender fits on that ferrari but it doesn't fit on any other ferrari okay that's yeah. awesome right it, it is great it's just not interchangeable well, and the, the question I have is right now, all of our legacy, I think probably all platforms are uh, like hardware limited. You know, they somehow, most of our platforms flying at least don't have as much storage as you would want. They don't have as much computing power as you would want. And we actually just spoke with someone, uh, or we had an episode released not too long ago about creating lower energy consumption and uh, and computing requirements at the edge products. So how are they managing to create all this extra processing and extra uh, capabilities without having to replace all the hardware and software or maybe just hardware? Yeah. So, uh, I think the F 16 roadmap, uh, and I'll give a shout out to all the folks at Eglin. Um, I think is a great template for what's coming. Um, and, if you look at, so you're right, hardware is difficult. And by the way, it's difficult for everybody. And so uh, if you look at Lockheed, right, they're going to make, let's say it's 3,500 F-35s. I'm sure they'd all be doing backflips if they could make that many. Um, but the 1,000th one will fly like the 100th one will fly like the 1,500th F-35. Like that is not trivial, right? So just getting hardware to be, representative across the fleet is an unbelievable undertaking of American ingenuity. And I, and I mean that in all sincerity, but to your point about software, right? Like what happens when the chips become obsolescent, which happens much more quickly than the LO capabilities or the engine capability, right? Um, well, the F-16 roadmap is once I get an aircraft stable and safe, that is FAA certified and has a military flight clearance, I should probably not change that. We've never done that in the past, right? When we went to Lockheed, we had to get all this other flight tests because we were screwing with the OFP because one computer ran the mission set and it ran the safety systems. Now with CDU, um, center display unit in the F-16, you're gonna break that apart and you're gonna have an OFP that can run all your safety systems and your flight controls. And you're gonna have a different mission computer, which oh, by the way, is upgradable with slots and has its own cooling and, you, and it has independent power source probably, if not, it will be much lower power drain than one big new computer. And now it can run all your mission systems, right? So if you look at top aces, um, uh, they bought F the Israeli F-16s and now they've converted, they have one prototype and they're going to convert several more. 
into the advanced aggressor fighter that they're advertising. And when that thing takes off, it's going to be built in 1978 still. It's going to have ESA. It's going to have uh, modular memory. So you, it's flash memory. So you don't have to worry about classification issues between goes. You want to put a Erst on it? Sure. You want to put a AIM-9X CADM or a Raphael CADM or something else? Sure. Like you can do all that. And it's because that is a, uh, that processor is independent from the aircraft safety systems. Um, and it has probably 10,000 times the computing power of the original FCC that's in the airplane, right? And I think that is the roadmap, right? How do you get to a point where your safety systems and redundant systems and flight controls are, are static and they just don't change unless they absolutely have to. So you can maintain all those flight safety and security and, and, uh, uh, and interim flight clearances, both by the FAA and the military. And then you upgrade your mission systems completely independently. And you have as little interaction as possible between those two, right? And that is probably the architecture going forward. That's awesome. I like that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, did you yeah. see the other day they uh, publicized how the Raptor, the F-22, was working with third-party uh, software on it? Uh, uh, is this, again, in my ignorance, I'm like, oh, this sounds like that. Is that kind of what they're doing with the Raptor where they're running some small components internal to its missionized side of the jet? Yeah, so I think the hope would be, I mean, imagine a world where you had an iPad, right? Not really an iPad, not advertising for anybody, but you had an external computing device that had your AIM-120 and every other weapon DLZ on it. And instead of having to upgrade your OFP, whenever you, whenever that company goes, hey, it turns out the the 12345 missile has a, a capability that we haven't integrated yet, and now we have it in the DLZ, and you just literally went USB, kaboom. And now your airplane had it, right? It wouldn't affect anything safety-wise in the airplane. I, the Air Force is always going to want to do some software checks, right? And, and what I'm getting at is there is a world in the not-too-distant future where you can test mission-focused software against the safety systems, confirm they don't have any interaction or effect, and then you can just get clearances to update those as required for mission needs. So you could land your airplane get a USB, probably not really a USB, but something similar and update, like think about your airplane vendor, think of all the EW systems you'd wanna have upgraded or all the profiles you'd wanna have upgraded based off real world interactions with some of these systems. And you could do that in a period of hours rather than months. That would be pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well you think from right? one go to the next, even, you know, in combat, you're, you're a different platform, you know, you're, you're more ready for what yeah. you're, you're fighting. So, and I would tell you, get ready with all these, um, adversary air, commercial adversary airs companies spinning up, you're getting ready to see things like, Hey, I landed from the first go and our EA wasn't as effective as we thought it was against platform X. And somebody goes, try this. And second go, you have a new MDF. That's That'd be awesome. how nice would that be? You could potentially do it over the air, right? But you may or may not want to, right? Because, you know, pilot's perspective is not always objective. You can't always see everything that's interacting. But you could if you wanted to do that, right? And so I, I, you're just getting ready to see capabilities be much more responsive than at any time in your career. And it's exciting, but it's also challenging. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the whole goal with the ABMS or JADC2, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, all this data, like jets just kind of key in to – to effectively like the link or some network and then that all that stuff just lives there and you can you can access it and update and you know 
were integrate together. I was talking with uh, the CEO, Brian Stream from Veermeer, and they're working on some wild XR uh, stuff. But the XR is cool. The Swarm technology that they use, in, like uh, computer imaging and 3D mapping to know where things are and uh, not needing GPS for updates. And, and, I was, and he's like, yeah, I don't even know what the Air Force wants with this. And I was like, I know exactly I know what, what I want. want. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was like, oh my gosh, this is insane. So yeah, it's uh it's pretty cool. I mean, there's there's so much cool stuff going on out there that you can't help but get excited because I think we're we're on the opposite end of it now. Before we were just, you know, hey, you know, they they updated the thing and now the MMC like blinks at you if it's a, you know, if if there's too much stuff like in the fight or, you know, you just have these random problems because the operating system wasn't built like it was built well, it just had weird bugs and you had to wait till the next time it came out where now stuff just moves fast. And so it's it's literally like Christmas morning. It's like, hey, everything you want, you know, is in the works. And you're like, yes, I love this. Yep. Yeah, I, and I think that's going to get better. Um, and it, so I think the, you know, like if you look at the U.S. Air Force, the history and how we got technological advantages, right? We would we field the F-22. We were the only Air Force that had the F-22 for 20 years, and that's awesome, right? We had fifth gen before everybody else. But that's not really, that's not the reality in the coming world, right? Like you're going to get small capability gaps and then your adversary is going to catch up or we may be catching up to them. Right. And we're going to try to minimize the time that we have a technology gap. And so we're getting close to our time here, but what does that mean to the operators out there right now? The ability to think in time in 4d thinking, right? Not just 3d thinking, you know, have maneuvering in re- relation to another airplane, BFM 3d thinking, right? But the ability to think, how does this progress over time? Right. How do I get better? How do I teach people better? How how do I get to my goal in five years of blank and, and all the steps I need to take? Right. Which is just kind of ingrained into how we do business. That is what I think needs to be leveraged now. The ability to think in time and how do I get there? So think about this when we have technology capabilities that we're trying to field in years or months or weeks. Right. This is no longer well, it's the engineer's problem. They'll solve it in five years. No. We're having capability emerging and we don't know what to do with it. How do we use that? And I need to know now. I need to make this change in a month. I have an exercise in three months. So now that capability, that training, that mental flexibility, that uh, that that model that we put into you for training, that's how you leverage that moving forward. I love it. I can't. And I think that's why even more reason to have more operators in the innovation space because companies are going to need that perspective to help understand where their technology fits in the greater fight. Cause I think there's a lot of people out there who have tech uh, that don't even understand how much of a game changer it is to the end user and to the broader fight because they don't realize the limitations that we currently exist under, you know, whether it's due to classification right. reasons or just cause they're not an operator. So I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. Uh, number one, for any operator that's trying to transition, reach out to the podcast, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. You're worth more than you think. I promise you that. You're already undervaluing yourself. But here's the second thing. What would you do if you had to change a tactic in your squadron or change a process in your squadron? How long would that take, right? Some maybe weeks, maybe months. Could be a year, right? Technology is not that different. I go to these conferences and Tangram's a small com- company and, and we're working on emergency merging technology. I understand that, but 
But I go to these companies and say, I have this problem where this doesn't talk to this. And I'm like, we saw that a year ago, but they just don't know it, right? So I'm like, well, so how do I say it without, in a way that they're going to be receptive to that, right? And talk about their problems and how I might be able to help them solve those problems, right? Not even quicker or less expensive, but just like I have a solution for you uh, and may make people believe that, right? It's no different than being in a squadron. I have a tactical solution. How do I convince my leadership or empower my leadership to go to the wing commander or even ACC to get that solution implemented? It's no different than what you're doing in the tech space. It just happens a little more quickly, a little bit less red tape sometimes. Yeah, I like that. Red tape is uh, the bane of my existence. But. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, Blitz, I appreciate it. Bender, you got anything before we let Blitz go? No, I just want to say thanks. I appreciate you coming out and obviously double down. Always in forever. Yeah, double down. Love it. Yeah. Well, uh, Blitz, if you want, feel free. Uh, let us know uh, how anybody could contact you if you want to give a uh, email or something if people want to reach out. So the easiest way is all because uh, I'm having some email change-ups coming quickly. Rather than give them stale information, uh, I'll send it to you, and they can reach out via, I'm sure you have a website or a podcast site or wherever you keep it, and, and uh, that way it can be posted up there once I get yeah. settled. Once I, once I get it, I'll, I'll post it on the, uh, the show notes. So if, uh, if you are looking to contact Blitz, check the show notes. We'll have the email there. And if you can't find it or we don't have it by the time this airs, I'll add it to, uh, or just contact us at, uh, info at Kodiakshack.com and then check out our website, Kodiakshack.com. Maybe we'll get some, uh, some link to, uh, Blitz's new situation that he's got going. Um, all right. Well, thanks again, Blitz. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you guys today. All right, see you. See you later. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.